Good morning to you. <laughs> Jerry's been away. Perhaps you heard the one about the little old lady who called her neighbor and says, Marge, can you please come over and help me? I have a very difficult puzzle, and I can't figure out how to get it started. And so Marge asked, well, what's it supposed to be when you're finished? And the lady responded, well, according to the picture on the box, it's going to be a rooster. So Marge decides to go over and help her friend. The little old lady opens the door and takes Marge to the big kitchen counter where the puzzle is laid out, and she sees all the pieces spread on the table. And uh, Marge studies those pieces for a moment, and then she looks over at the box, and then she turns back to her friend, the little old lady, and says, uh, Honey, first of all, no matter what we do, we are not going to be able to assemble these pieces into anything that even partially resembles a rooster. And then Marge takes the little old lady's hand and says, you know, I just want you to relax. Let's have a nice cup of tea. And then with a great big sigh, she says, then let's put all those cornflakes back in the box. <laughs> so it goes with the impossible. So it goes with the impossible. If we attempt the truly impossible, we're going to be simply spinning our wheels. And 1 Corinthians 2 is going to reveal several human impossibilities, and you need to understand them. These truths were not given to leave us to feel dejected, but so that we might be affected, that we might no longer lean on ourselves, but on God as we seek to share Christ to our friends and our neighbors and our children and even our spouses, if need be. And so I would like for you to turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. Now, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, please use one of ours. In the center of your pew rack, there will be a big blue pew Bible. And if you turn to page 1211, 1211 you should find 1 Corinthians 2. And as you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time and His text together today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite You as Lord of this church to speak as a lion, that You would roar, that You would have a deafening roar through Scripture today, that as we endeavor to uh, proclaim the whole counsel of God, to go verse by verse through that revelation in which You've given us, we pray, Lord Jesus, that through the plain reading of Scripture, that You would take these words and indelibly imprint them in our hearts, that we would no longer try to do the impossible, but we would understand, Lord, we need You. And that might lead us to pray fervently and effectively and pointedly and particularly that You would reveal, that You would come alongside as the parakletos, the, the Holy Spirit as the One who walks along beside us, that You would convict and convince of all truth, for You are truth. We pray, Lord, that we would not try through our argumentation or our elocution or our technique to do what can only be done by the Spirit of God. And may we take that seriously and pray earnestly that the harvest might return abundantly. We pray this in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. We're going to be reading the entirety of chapter 2. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Word of God says this. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. He's not against wisdom. He's against a certain kind of wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right. So the Corinthian Christians, as we've already seen in this letter, uh, instead of thinking biblically, instead of thinking scripturally, they were thinking culturally. You either look at uh, the world through the lens of the Bible, or you look at the Bible through the lens of the world. And they were looking at life, not biblically, but culturally, and Paul is correcting that heavily in his letter. And their culture jockeyed for position around prominent people. You wanted to sort of attach yourself under a big name who had fame, and you would have status by association. Now, the Aegean orators, remember Corinth is on the Isthmus of Corinth, and this is in a, a, the Greek area of the Greco-Roman world, and those Aegean orators who plied their pretty words had so influenced the Corinthians' worldview that the Christian carried this carnality back into the sanctuary. And this led to factions among the congregation. And it looked like this. Some of the saints said, I follow Paul. And others said, well, I follow Apollos. And others said, I, I follow Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. Unless we be too impressed with ourselves, too hard on those Corinthians, are we any different? We live in an age that deifies celebrity, don't we? 
A twit can tweet and millions of followers will agree even if the statement is cockamamie and the logic is faulty. Uh, celebrities whose main ability is to look pretty while reading a script they didn't even write can influence everything from what credit card is in your wallet to what orange juice is on your table. Even when they tell us they really have no business advising us in this, the advertisers still know the celebrity holds sway. Do you remember that old advertisement from a while ago? I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Order XYZ. We did. We're like, oh, yeah, we should do that. Uh, today, celebrities even tell us how to vote. Because if there is one thing, someone who stands in front of a green screen fighting imaginary CGI monsters knows, it's macroeconomics and geopolitics. I think we'd all agree with that. You see, this penchant for celebrity that's so deep in our culture, it, it also unfortunately pours into our churches. And so, we become disciples of, of Andy Stanley or John MacArthur or Matt Chandler or whomever. And against this factionalism, Paul says in no uncertain terms, if you are looking to men, you better look again. Listen to our passage, friends. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's a brother here who has that on his Bible and he wants that on his tombstone. I want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstrations of the Spirit and power so that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. Now, if this passage ended at verse 5, we might think that God's dichotomy is that wisdom is bad and demonstrations of the power of the Spirit are good. We might fall into the very same epistemological trap that the Jews did in chapter 1 of this book because the Jews were always seeking signs and wonders. But God wants us to have faith in His Word, not merely run after some miraculous spectacle Friends, people are not saved simply by seeing signs. And I can prove that to you according to Scripture. Uh, the Jews who demanded a sign were given sign after sign after sign after sign after sign. Jesus walked on water. He stilled storms. He fed the multitudes from a little boy's lunch. He healed the sick. He cast out demons, even a legion of them. Uh, Jesus then gave them the sign of Jonah that on the third day He would rise from the grave. And when He did, they still refused to believe. Why? Because signs don't save. The Gospel does. The Gospel does. And so no, Scripture is not saying wisdom bad, signs and wonders good. Though there are some churches that will tell you that. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, if you pay careful attention, you're going to notice that far from saying reject wisdom, Paul says embrace wisdom. Just make sure that it's God's wisdom. Listen to verse 6. It's not a rejection of wisdom. It's a rejection of the wrong kind of wisdom. Verse 6 says this, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age, which are all doomed 
to pass away. And that brings us to point one today. If you open up your uh, bulletin tucked in the middle, Beth has put a lovely outline, and you're welcome to follow along on that outline with us today. Point one today is this. We can't arrive at salvific truth without God's revelation. We can't arrive at salvific truth without God's revelation. Light has gone into the world, but men love darkness. We can understand there's a Creator. We might even gather that we're accountable. But if we don't have the special revelation to explain that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we're stuck. We can't arrive at it by guessing. Point one today is very clear, and you need to know it very well, and that's why it's so important that we have a story to tell. We can't arrive at salvific truth apart from God revealing it to us. Look at our passage again, starting at verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom. God doesn't reveal it. You're not going to get it. A secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, friend, verse 8, the rulers of this age, none of them understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now friends, there's a wisdom in this world in our passage. And, and there is a ruler of this world in our passage. That is, there's a Luciferic kind of logic that is in the world today. Let me show you what I mean. God's Word, God's wisdom, and Lucifer's logic. We're going to look at this from a few angles. Number one. God's Word says, the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Luciferic logic says, in the beginning there was nothing. And nothing added nothing, and over time nothing and nothing became everything. One of those is wrong. One of them isn't. God's Word said, let us make man and woman in our image and in our likeness. And let's give them a special position within creation. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing over the earth. But Luciferic logic says this, you are a cosmic accident. We're just animals. Human life is not especially valuable. And if it's inconvenient, just terminate it. God's Word says this, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread because all have sinned. But Luciferic logic says there's no such thing as sin. Sin is an aberration of your imagination. It is not part and parcel of the fallen human condition. In fact, Lucifer will tell you, and the culture will tell you, and anyone who's willing to listen will be told this, you don't have a sin problem. Somebody else has a judgment problem. God's Word says this, one of the most important words in all of the Bible. And Satan will attack it from a hundred different directions and we'll parse a few. God's Word says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And Luciferic logic says, well, there's no God. And love is not a self-sacrificial choice. It's an emotional and biochemical reaction you sort of fall into and fall out of. Luciferic logic says, well, God has no son. Allah has a prophet. And Siddhartha Gautama is the Buddha, and he reached enlightenment. Uh, try that. But whatever you do, don't put your faith in Jesus. Luciferic logic is quick to say, there's no eternal life. But if you must believe in a hereafter, then how about reincarnation? 
so you can get another shot to improve your own situation. Uh, whatever your understanding on the afterlife, Luciferic logic wants you to believe you will not perish. Hell doesn't exist. But if you persist and there is a hell, well then hell is clearly for Hitler and serial killers and not regular old sinners like you and me. And Luciferic logic says heaven doesn't exist, but if it does, I'm sure you will get there. And there's no need to look to Jesus to take you there. Friends, Satan speaks a thousand languages. To the materialist, he will say matter is all that matters. So enjoy your life now because it ends in death and there's nothing after. So don't worry about that. To the religious, Satan will say, don't be ridiculous. Don't trust in God's grace. You must earn your place. So do this or don't do that. But whatever you do, don't trust in Jesus alone to atone for your sin within. Look to your works. Offer God a trade. Your good deeds somehow outweighing your bad. But friends, there is a God-given wisdom. There is a hidden wisdom. There is a secret wisdom. And God reveals this wisdom through His Word. And He's speaking to you today if you've never heard it before. This God-given wisdom, this secret wisdom, well, the world doesn't know it. And it doesn't understand it. Friends, even the demons don't get it. Let me show you what I mean. It's very clear in verse 8. Let's start with verse 6 in context, but pay attention when we get to verse 8. Paul writes, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Verse 8, now the rulers of this age, none of them understood this. None of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The human rulers, Pilate and the Jewish Sanhedrin, didn't get it. If they did, they, wouldn't have, they would have coronated Jesus instead of crucifying Jesus. But friends, you need to understand there was a deeper hand that had a hand in what they failed to understand. Ephesians 2 speaks of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, speaking of Satan. Uh, Ephesians 2 speaks of the rulers of this age. That's referring to the devil and his minions, the demons. And the gospel took all of those rulers, heavenly and earthly, or demonically and earthly, by surprise. It would seem Luciferic logic thought that Calvary would be Satan's greatest victory, that he could mockingly slay the Son of God by the accursed ignominy of death by hanging on a tree. And yet Satan's greatest victory was actually God's greatest triumph. By making Jesus a curse, the Bible says Jesus took our curse. And the promise, way back in Genesis 3.15, when the first sin came in, the solution was promise. Back in Genesis 3.15, that, that through the seed of the woman, though Satan will strike his heel, the Messiah will defang that old serpent once and for all. will crush his head. For by Jesus' brutal death, we have eternal life. Through the crucible of the crucifixion, God brought about the miracle of the resurrection so you and I can have salvation. Through the crucifixion, we have redemption. And so God is able, the Scripture says, to be both just and justifier by taking upon Himself 
the guilt that was owed us all. Through the scandal of the cross, God undertakes His messy grace project and He turns worldly sinners like you and me into heavenly saints. Praise God. Friends, in the Gospel, and only in the Gospel, nowhere but the Gospel, do we have a secret in hidden wisdom. You won't find it by human logic, though it is entirely logical. You can't arrive at it by pious adherence to man's religion. No, no, no. The Bible says you have to embrace it by faith. Listen to verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. You can't get there on your own. What God has prepared for those who love Him. How many of you heard that verse as a launch pad into some pontification on the unfathomability of heaven? Yeah, that's how we usually use that verse, but that's not really what the verse is saying. The old preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, about 150 years ago, commenting on verse 9, got it dead on. How frequently this verse of Scripture is misquoted. How frequently do we hear believers describing heaven as a place of which we cannot conceive, and then they quote verse 9, and there they stop. But they miss the marrow of the passage that bleeds on to verse 10. The apostle was not talking about heaven at all, Spurgeon tells us. He was only saying that the wisdom of this world is not able to discover the things of God. That the merely carnal mind is not able to know the deep spiritual things of our most holy faith. And that is what the following verses make clear in context, isn't it? This text teaches that the things of God cannot be perceived by eye or by ear or by heart, but they must be revealed by the Spirit of God. The context is we have a secret hidden wisdom of God revealed to us in Scripture alone. In Scripture alone. Listen again. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what the heart of man has not been able to imagine, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You see, God's Spirit knows God's mind. God's Spirit reveals to us things no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can imagine. Specifically, things about our salvation that are prepared for those who love Jesus. You know what that means? In very simple terms, it means that no philosopher can tease out these truths. No scientist can produce these truths in his laboratory. No religious guru up a mountain can uncover this truth for you. God must reveal this hidden and secret wisdom. And He's done it through the Gospel. Have you embraced it? Verse 11, For no one knows a person's thoughts except for the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Friends, these truths were not meant to remain hidden. They have been revealed to us by God in God's Word. I want you to listen again to verse 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Friends, did you know that when the Bible is heard, God is heard? It's not an opinion. When the Bible is heard, God is heard. 
God has given His revelation in words, He said. Jesus says in John 17, 17, Thy word is truth. And Jesus, as the author and perfecter of our faith, knows a bit about that because He is the truth, the way, and the life. Which is why Paul tells all preachers for all times and all locations forever that they are to preach the Word. Romans 10.14 says, How then can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without what, friends? Someone preaching the Word to them. Romans 1.16 says this, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. It is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 16.25 puts it like this, Now to him who is able to establish you by the gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Remember, he, he, he won't know anything but Jesus and him crucified. According to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. Remember, we have a secret and hidden wisdom. But now revealed, God has to reveal this to us, verse 26, and made known through the prophetic writings, that is the Bible, the Scriptures, by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey Him, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Religion doesn't get you there. Faith in Jesus does. We learn about authentic Jesus through God's authentic testimony of Jesus. The Scriptures. But you need to understand, we can't arrive at salvific truth without God's revelation. We can't arrive at salvific truth without God's revelation. That means we must share Scripture with others. Not self-help blather, not pious chatter, but Scripture. We must share the Gospel, not merely a, a there, there, we care, milk toast moralism, devoid of a call to surrender all to Christ and His authority. You know, flowery words may comfort the hurting, but they don't rescue the perishing. We must point people to Jesus and urge them to repent that times of refreshing will come upon them as they came upon us because there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Now, if this was all Paul had to say in our passage then we would simply need to run around and share Scripture left, right, and center. But friends, our problems run deeper, and you need to understand that as you witness. That brings us to point two today. We can't understand God's revelation without God's Spirit. We can't understand God's revelation without God's Spirit. I remember reading the Bible before I was a Christian, and it was an enigma and a mystery, and it seemed odd to me. And now it's beautiful and bountiful, and I can read it and read it and read it, and it doesn't just me read it, it reads me. What changed? I changed. God changed me. We can't understand God's revelation without God's Spirit. Listen to the back half of verse 13, and you're going to see that while revelation is essential, it's not sufficient. We must have God's Spirit, or we as hard-hearted sinners will reject the truth of Scripture. Verse 13, And we impart in this uh, in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to who? To those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they must be spiritually discerned. The Bible is the Word of God. 
but it's often rejected by men. The great learning centers of today, they don't really want to hear from the Bible, do they? That the primary thing they, they teach you from at Princeton and Harvard and NASA? While the Bible gives us the only true counsel on the human condition, we would rather keep our fiction that man is essentially good and only needs a little bit of education to perform to satisfaction. That's our problem, education. But friends, the most educated society in the last century was clearly Nazi Germany. It was. And so if all we needed was education and not spiritual transformation, then we would have had a very different century last century, amen? Our problem isn't ignorance, it's sin. And so we need to pray, we need to pray, we need to pray for God to open men's eyes. Or all the scripture in the world will not change anybody's heart. For we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you believe that, Christian? If you do, it's going to change the way you witness. You're going to witness on your knees and not just with your tongue. The Scriptures are true, but without the Spirit's help, we tend to reject the truth and we will embrace a lie. Now, the Scriptures are beautiful, but to the lost... It's like going to a full orchestra and they're playing a rousing William Tell overture and it's stirring and it's moving and it's amazing and everybody in the audience is stone cold down. It's not the beauty of the notes, it's the inability to hear the music. It's like taking a tour group to, to the Louvre and, and, and you see all of the beautiful paintings, one after the other, after the other, after the other, and row after row, and where do you look? But your entire group is entirely blind. It's not the Louvre's problem, it's the viewer's problem. It isn't that the paintings aren't marvelous, it's that we can't see the beauty because of our blindness. We need eyes to see, we need ears to hear, and so you need to pray for your friends to see the beauty of Jesus, to hear the great trumpet call of the gospel to rouse them from their slumber. One writer put it like this, I've put it a little bit more locally for us, but here it goes. The natural man goes to ShopRite, and he buys all-natural salad dressing. And he puts it on his naturally grown tomatoes. And then a lady pushes her way in front of him in the checkout line, and it's only natural. He gets upset by that. And after ringing up his groceries, the checker accidentally gives him too much change, and so he keeps it naturally. And then he comes home, and he does what comes naturally. He eats, and he drinks, and he becomes somewhat merry until the emptiness of his soul drives him to look for something else. Like the old song said, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And, and so he stumbles into a, a gathering of believers in a Bible study, and he hears the Word of God being taught. But it sounds like foolishness to him. Because as a natural man, he's spiritually blind, isn't he? And so you need to pray for your friends and neighbors by name, with a fervency and a frequency and an intensity like there's an eternity. Because what needs to happen can only happen supernaturally. God needs to open their eyes 
and unstop their ears. The problem is our heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart, and people have hearts of stone, and they need to be given hearts of, of flesh. If you walk into a museum and it's full of stone statues, you can preach all day and nothing's going to happen. But you need to pray that you wouldn't be preaching to statues, but to people where God is working in their hearts. Friends, point one is true. We can't arrive at salvific truth without God's revelation. And so we must learn the Word that we might know where in God's Word to answer everyone regarding the hope that's within us. But simply becoming a Scripture dispenser is not enough if we're going to win people to Christ. We must become fervent and ardent prayer warriors because point two is true. We can't understand God's revelation without God's Spirit moving in their hearts. For we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand him, because they are spiritually discerned. See if this sounds familiar. Why don't you give him a piece of your mind? What do you mean you're trying to turn the other cheek and not lose your witness in this? I don't get it. Why do you give so much money to your church? Why does your church give money to people in Zimbabwe and Cambodia? You've never met those people. I get it, I get it, I get it. You, you like Jesus or whatever. Uh, so you go there on Sundays. Do you have to go every Sunday? Why do you come back for two hours on Sunday night? What's wrong with you? Why do you go on Tuesday? What is a small group anyway? You see, to the natural person who does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Friends, we need God's revelation. But understand, we won't embrace God's revelation without the assistance of God's Spirit. Are you asking for it? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on my grandchild. Fall fresh on my co-worker. Fall you follow what I'm saying? That brings us to point three. We can't persuade people we can't persuade people to embrace God's revelation without God's power. We can't persuade people to embrace God's revelation without God's power. The Bible says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. There was no arrogance in their witness. There was a humility that Paul knew Jesus had to show up or there was no point in this. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The amazingly gifted Apostle Paul did not lean primarily on his gifting. The unique appointed Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, did not lean primarily on his lofty calling. The Apostle Paul witnessed not out of a confidence in his logic or his rabbinic training, though he could write with lawyer-like precision, carried over 16 chapters in a book such as Romans. No. When Paul shared Christ, he said he did it in weakness and in fear but in much trembling. And if you are a chicken witness, you're in good position. 
because that means you're going to look for God to reach people. Friends, this is too often what's missing in our witnessing, isn't it? Instead of begging God to open our friends and our, and our children's and our grandchildren and, our, and our, even our spouses' hearts to the Lord, we think that if we could just say it eloquently, it's going to all happen magically. No, friend, it must happen miraculously. It must happen spiritually. God's Spirit must open their eyes. God's Spirit must convict them of their sin and convince them of His Son as the sole solution for their soul's pollution. That's how it works. That's how it worked for you, wasn't it? You know what, friends? Do you understand when we witness we have three insurmountable problems? The first is we have a revelation impossibility. They're not going to arrive at it unless they hear the Word of God. Number two, we have a cognition impossibility. People don't tune in to the Word of God. It sounds like garbled mutter. And number three, we have a presentation impossibility. You and I can't say it slick enough, clear enough, better enough so that they can get it enough. What's the title of today's sermon? Lord, I need you. What did we sing today? Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you to put forth your word with unapologetic vigor and enthusiastic fervor, or I won't be able to do it. We need your spirit to open the eyes of our neighbors, or we won't be able to point them to the Savior. Uh, we need your divine power to do what we could never do. We can't make dry bones live. We can't make the deaf hear. We can't make the blind see, but God can. But God can. Are you asking Him? Are you sharing the gospel because you believe it's the power of God and are you praying for that other that they become your brother through the Savior? In these last few minutes together, I'd like for you to turn to your neighbor and pray to your Savior that God would be pleased to use Calvary Church as a place where new Christians are born and birthed, where hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh, where the gift of faith is received robustly and regularly, where folks are not just served, but they're saved, where the Gospel is not just taught, but it's caught, where Jesus is not just exalted, but He's emulated, He's celebrated, He's propagated, so that others are converted. Are you content doing church or do you want to be church and see the power of the living God reach people eternally? Well, if you're here today and you're a bit shy, that's okay. Uh, you can pause and pray in the quietness of your heart and your seat. Nobody's going to think any less of you. Whether you do it individually or I encourage you to consider doing it corporately, Let's ask God to do what only He can do. In us, through us, with us, and friends, very often in spite of us. Let's pray. And in a few minutes, I'll close us in prayer.
Father, Your Word tells us in the Old Testament that He who winneth souls is wise. Would You make Calvary Church and every person that's a part of it wise? May we make people wise unto salvation. May You work, Father. We understand that folks will not get saved apart from Your revelation. It is the Gospel that is the power of God. May we have the Gospel on our lips. May our lives line up in such a way that we're a perfume in a room and not a stench in the trench. We pray, Lord Jesus, asking that Your revelation would be understood because Your Spirit is at work. Would You lead us to people that You are at work in? No one seeks after God, the Scripture says. And yet, people are coming to Christ and people have questions about Christ. And so that's indicative that Your Spirit is doing the impossible. It is wooing and drawing and calling. It is convicting and convincing. Make us aware of where you are at work. Give us upfront in our face opportunities to share Christ that are so clear we couldn't walk away from even if we wanted to. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would put on our hearts a burden on our left hand five people who will not let us share Jesus though we've tried. And may we pray for them each day that you would open their heart that they'd be receptive to hear the gospel. And on our right hand, Lord, may we think of five people who will let us share Christ but who have not yet given their life to Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would burden us with the five on the left, that they would become people on the right, and the people on the right would become people on your right hand. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be about your business, for you came to seek and save the lost. We are easily distracted by the lesser. Help us to remain focused on the greater. Everything in this world will burn. Our houses, our accolades, our businesses. But two things will remain. Though heaven and earth pass away, your word shall not. And people will not. They will either be eternally with you in glory or they will be eternally condemned by you for rejecting. And so we pray, Lord, that we would invest our lives around the word of God and the people that you want to bring unto yourself. We ask, Lord, that Your Spirit would be at work in our witnessing and Your power would be upon us because apart from You, we can do nothing. Lord, we need You. Use us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.